welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We'll be speaking about a very, very uh, serious subject, and one that everyone is actually very curious about. Many Americans, world leaders, and people everywhere are deeply concerned about what seems to be the mental clarity and fitness of the newly elected President of the United States, Mr. Donald J. Trump. Without any formal means that might be required by law to evaluate presidential candidates or any other elected official, for that matter, we rely upon our own sense of assessment, subjective and, as best we can, objective, as well as those of professionals to arrive at a deeper understanding of what may be that what, what it is we're dealing with here. With numerous nations with nuclear capability these days, with mounting effects of climate change across the planet, uh, creating drought, food shortages, rising sea levels, and numerous wars in motion at any given moment in time, with the capacity to destroy the world many times over with a few commands, the mental and emotional stability as well as non-reactive intellectual clarity of the commander-in-chief is an absolute necessity. Yet perhaps at no other time quite like this before in U.S. history, we have had so many questions surrounding this important topic about the holder of this office. To discuss this subject, I have invited to join me in this roundtable Dr. Rick Lippin, Jungian psychoanalyst Dr. Michael Conforti, and professor of psychiatry at Tufts University, Dr. Nasir Gami. A little bit about our guests. Dr. Rick Lippin is a recognized leader in the medical specialty of occupational and environmental medicine, which he practiced for over 25 years, during which he held senior positions in several major corporations. In, in December of 1999, Dr. Lippin accepted a position as Chief Medical Officer of EarthMed.com, an internet-based holistic health company. In recognition for his achievements in this field, Dr. Lippin was the 1997 recipient of the prestigious Health Achievement in Occupational Medicine Award given annually by the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Additionally, Dr. Lippin holds academic faculty appointments at Jefferson Medical College and at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. In January of 1996, Dr. Lippin published his first peer-reviewed article on the topic of alternative medicine in the workplace in the highly regarded Journal of Alternative Therapies, edited by Dr. Larry Dossey, who has been a guest on this show several times. Dr. Michael Conforti is a Jungian analyst and the founder and director of the esteemed Assisi Institute. He has been a faculty member of the C.G. Jung Institute in Boston and in the C.G. Jung Foundation of New York. For many years, he has served as senior associate faculty member in the doctoral and master's programs in clinical psychology at Antioch New England Graduate School. He is the author of Threshold Experiences, The Archetype of Beginnings, and Field, Form, and Fate, Patterns in Mind, Nature, and Psyche. His articles have appeared in Psychological Perspectives, 
San Francisco Young Library Journal, Roundtable Press, World Futures, the Journal of General Evolution, and Spring Journal. Dr. Conforti maintains a private practice in Mystic, Connecticut, and consults with individuals and corporations around the world. He provides his insights as a sought-after consultant to businesses, government, institutions, and the film industry. Dr. Nasir Gami is an MD and MPH, Masters of Public Health, and is a psychiatric research with, researcher with expertise in depression and bipolar disorder and training in philosophy and public health. He's a professor of psychiatry and director of the Mood Disorders Program at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. He also teaches at Harvard Medical School as a clinical lecturer. He is the author of A First-Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness, a New York Times bestseller, and a half a dozen other books with over 200 scientific articles or book chapters. Dr. Gamey has a medical degree from the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, completed medical and psychiatry residency training at Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital and McLean Hospital programs, receiving a Master of Arts degree in philosophy from Tufts and a Master's of Public Health degree from the Harvard School of Public Health. And myself, uh, many of you know me already, so I won't go into detail, but simply to say in general, I have been a holistic psychotherapist with a background in traditional Chinese medicine, energy medicine, biofeedback, combining Chinese energetics within a psychological paradigm. I have been trained in neurolinguistic programming, Ericksonian hypnotherapy, and psychodrama, but use my own uh, variation on that called therapeutic theater. As well, I use neuropsychology and quantum morphogenetic fields as an integrated part of my work with clients. I've been in private practice in New York City since 1980. So gentlemen, welcome to A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you all on to deal with this particularly difficult subject and one with great sensitivity and importance, actually, for uh, discussion, uh, intelligent discussion, and looking at the different angles. Now, it happens that Dr. Rick Lippin sent an article out to a few of us uh, just this afternoon, which references an article by Johns Hopkins' top psychotherapist who released a diagnosis, um, avoiding the Goldwater Rule, and it is something worth our taking a look at, but of course, first I want to hear about what each of you might have to say about what we may be facing as we regard Dr. Donald Trump, and we'll go from there, and then we'll get into what possible guidelines we may want to consider setting up legally, so we have some level of boundary and barrier when it comes to who gets to attain and even run for this office. So, Dr. Rick Lippin, let us start with you. Welcome, and what are your thoughts? I know you've been very preoccupied with the entire subject of Donald Trump's mental health. What do you want to share with our audience? Thank you. Thank you, Mitchell. Can you hear me? Fine. Yes, absolutely. 
Okay, well, thank you for the gracious introduction. Thank you to my colleagues for also being on the phone today. Yeah, I come to the table, Mitchell, uh, as an occupational physician, and I have examined for over 40 years a large number of employees to determine whether or not they are fit to do a specific job, and that's the emphasis that I would like to take today. Uh, we're celebrating uh, in 2017 the uh, 50th anniversary I, I, uh, of the uh, of the uh, 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Section 4, in particular, is the one that I have an interest in, which allows us under the Constitution, uh, through a rather abstruse mechanism, to declare a president disabled. That uh, amendment needs to be improved uh, and modernized and updated, uh, or we, could, uh, frankly, because if it uh, it is not improved, we're going to repeat the same pathological cycle that we are now in, with a risky situation uh, for the entire nation, if not the world. Now, the other issue that I have an interest in, and there have been some interesting breaking stories about uh, both of these issues, about the 25th Amendment. The other issue that I have a particular interest in also is the uh, codifying formal disclosure of medical information for candidates as well as sitting presidents, but for candidates for high office. And uh, believe it or not, there have been uh, some uh, initiatives uh, to uh, actually introduce legislation to require that candidates release uh, medical information, and I would add to include mental health status information. So I have had an interest in this for over a decade. Uh, I, I, I am not interested uh, in uh, the uh, diagnosis of Donald Trump per se, although I do think uh, he certainly has uh, serious psychiatric issues. Others, ha others have uh, written and spoken about uh, the danger of this presidency. I am interested in avoiding these types of, types of situations in the future by, one, again, revising the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, modernizing it with due respect to its existence now. It needs to be modernized. And two, ensuring that we have mechanisms to uh, codify the release of uh, information by all candidates, minimum requirements for release of information by all candidates for president, and maybe some other offices as well. So that's uh, okay, Mitchell. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me ask you. Let me, let me ask you, Rick, in your capacity that you have occupied for so long as uh, assessing people for their jobs in the field of occupational right. medicine. When you look, you say you're not interested in a diagnosis, but by everything you're saying, it sure looks like you are. So <laughs> I'm not asking, certainly, for a formal diagnosis at all, but you're sort of beating around the bush a little bit, and I'd like to get to what you actually think about this particular sitting president right now before we look at how to protect ourselves in the future. How do we deal with and look at and understand who it is we're dealing with now from your professional point of view? Okay, Mitchell, I'll give it a try, but let me cite experts 
who are far more qualified than I, myself. And let me tell sure. you that on November 29th, 2016, right after Thanksgiving, this was after the election, of course, took place, three very prominent psychiatrists, I think all three were from Harvard, uh, at least at some time in their career, three prominent psychiatrists wrote a letter to President Obama, uh, who was still the president, and they made the case to President Obama to, uh, to ask him to require that Donald Trump have a neuropsychiatric evaluation. And it was a pretty strong letter. Again, they didn't diagnose him, but they, uh, they uh, revealed their concern by asking the president at that time to require that Donald Trump receive a neuropsychiatric evaluation. Yes. Now, this was did, he receive by, an, did they receive an answer? No, they did not receive an answer. Very good question. But I think they made a very good point. And again, there's a certain amount of avoidance, and it's understandable because when the Goldwater rule went into effect, it was, there was a lawsuit uh, against a magazine who, uh, by Barry Goldwater, which resulted in a significant settlement, which I think no doctor wishes to uh, receive a letter in the mail from, from uh, President Trump's attorney. Needless to say, following that, there was a letter uh, published by the New York Times, letter to the editor on February 13, 2017. Uh, this was a letter that, that went further than asking for a neuropsychi uh, neuropsychiatric evaluation. This was a letter that actually um, it was signed by two very prominent uh, psychiatrists, but also co-signed by 33 others, psychiatrists and psychologists. And this particular letter went further than just... I, I'm uh, sorry, I'm sorry, Rick, to interrupt you. Just, I want to hear us. Uh, there's just some background noise that keeps occurring. So if anyone knows what that okay. might be, if you could somehow position yourself. So that's reduced. Okay. Thanks me, so much. Let yep. me try Please if continue. I can do better with the phone. Uh, this particular letter that was sent to the New York Times and published uh, went further than just a uh, asking for a, uh, a, an evaluation. It actually stated that these uh, 35 prominent psychiatrists and psychologists believed that Donald Trump was incapable of serving as president of the United States. And I, I can send all the letters to you and you can publish them later. Finally, just two weeks ago, and I was very happy about this because he is a colleague and a friend, Deepak Chopra, uh, just a few weeks ago, tweeted two tweets on, uh, on uh, I believe that was yeah, March 20th, where he again asked the uh, president himself. He tweeted one actually to the president because, as you know, the president is a tweeter. Uh, so Deepak Chopra tweeted to the president, and he said to the president, Dear Mr. President, I am requesting that you undergo a psychiatric and neurological evaluation. Chopra was concerned about Trump's mental health as well as his neurological health. So, As with the rest of us. And he managed to make that request in 144 characters or less. <laughs> well, he did. He did, and uh, that's always a challenge, but to... <laughs> you know, to uh, manage a global policy or U.S. policy under 140 tweets is very, uh, in my opinion, inappropriate. Yeah, so, that's another uh, conversation. Okay, 
Yeah, that's another. Actually, that's part of this I mean, conversation, frankly. Well, yeah. well, it is. Well, and thank you very much. Impulsive. Okay, so that's that's sort of where I'm thank coming you. from, and uh, yes, there uh, you can go we'll on to the that. others, but uh, thank we'll you for come the back. We'll come back. What I want each person, if we can, on the roundtable to say an initial uh, comments about the subject, and then we'll circle back and go around the table um, in a in a lively discussion among us. Okay. So, Dr. Michael Conforti, Jungian analyst, uh, when you reflect on these matters that we've raised here and that Rick was just sharing as well, uh, what are your thoughts from your point of view when you take a look at the current occupant of the White House? Well, Mitchell, again, thank you for the invitation to be part of this group today. And I'm pleasure uh, to have you. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I like the way you want to just cut to the chase. You want to, you want an answer. You want a response from people. Now, mm-hmm. Number one, I really should know more of the Goldwater Act in terms of are we burying ourselves in making comments? You know, I don't really know the answer to that one. Um, <laughs> however, we will we be legally liable? <laughs> What's that? Right. Will we be you know, legally liable? That's no. what I thought. Yeah. yeah. So th- there goes my career. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I, I did. We still have freedom of speech. Well, yeah. I mean, one psychiatrist said, "Look, I don't care." He said, "We're in such troubled times." He he went public with his opinions. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a mm-hmm. couple of things. One is, uh, and I'll try to be brief in my comments to give plenty of room to my colleagues here and to you, Mitch, to speak. <clears throat> Number one, I think one big issue is to ask, "How do we get here?" You know, how did we get into a situation where there is just so much background noise, so much? Uh, talks about lies, so much talk about treason, a person in power who has lost the respect of so many people. I mean, how do we get here? And, Mm -hmm. you know, while I do think we need to address the issue, and and your topic is is incredibly important, it's a profound topic, and, and again, I applaud you for that, having the courage to bring this to public. We got to ask the bigger question, or another question, which is, you know, what conditions allowed for this to emerge where we're in a, in a state right now where there's so much contempt, so much question about treason, betrayal, all of this, okay? That, mm-hmm. that's, that is unbelievably disturbing to me, you know, to, to, my, yes. to all of us, not just me, obviously. The next piece sure. you're asking, and you're looking to cut to the chase, you know, we're at a situation where morals and ethics don't matter, where this issue of fake news and issues of falsification of objective reality and, and truth is running rampant. And it's actually it's interesting because it's a theme I've been addressing for 30 years of my career as an analyst and as a researcher, which is there are constants in the world, you know, whether you look at issues of climate, whether issues of biological constants, um, some philosophical constants in the world. And the trend in psychology, especially in the past 30 years, has been, well, we take a constant and we we – we alter it to fit our own bias. And I think a great line we had years ago was from the famous Monica Lewinsky when she said, truth, my dear friend, is what you make it. You know, And that's where we come today. And I think it's such a pathetic state where truth is a commodity that we, we, we put on the market and try to bargain with. So yes. in terms of the issue, there's, there's, there's hardly any morality. There are lies yeah. and, and self-serving issues and nepotism of somebody that doesn't seem to have the capacity for reflection. I mean, that's that's too simply stated, reflection. 
I want to go back to a term that you know well from your graduate studies, Mitchell. The original term for what we now call psychopathy or what we now call sociopathy, the original term was moral insanity. I think we're at a time right now with this moral insanity. And when you look at somebody who is making such lies and, and creating lies and creating smoke screens and, and deceit, and you know, you only wonder how far this is going to go to subsidize whatever these efforts are that he's driving at with getting us into the what do they call them now fake wars or fake flags, whatever the term is. It's oh, I, I am so worried for, for all of us and my kids and grandkids yeah. for what the hell is going on right now because. I think we have a leader right now that, for all obvious reasons, has lost the respect and trust of, of a nation. What do I think? Yeah. And again, I don't know the, the whole law about what we're allowed to say on radio and go public or not, but I think there's no morality. You, you, uh, this is a better world, and we really rely on truthful statements as best we can, and we go from there to find solutions. So okay. the forum is yours. Okay. I would love to find some way to address issues of of morality, and I'm sure there are some ways that you can assess it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mm-hmm. like the idea of doing testing of the presidents and medical records and all that. But you know, and I remember, and I'll shut up here in a minute. When I was on the admissions committee, both for one of the analytic institutes in the country, and then for a PhD program. I remember that in the analytic programs, one issue that was always on the table was the moral character of the individual applying to become an analyst. Okay? When I got into being on the admissions committee for Ph.D. programs, they said, you can't talk about such things. I said, why not? Well, you know, we're looking more at records. We're looking more at test scores. I said, that's pathetic. That's pathetic. (laughs) When when issues of morality, issues of of conscience, issues of, of a concern for people are not on the table. What are we dealing with? What, what are we? What are we training? What are we creating? Yes, you know. And Michael, this is uh, <laughs> you're bringing up an entire fascinating and incredibly important subject, which is: Are we going to be looking at people's? people quantitatively only or qualitatively. In other words, what is the character behind the being that we yes. are looking to admit or give a, you know, a, a PhD to whomever. Yeah. Yeah. That's so a, great, a great way of putting it. Cannot be simply quantified. We have to appreciate moral development and evolution. I mean, after all, that's probably the greatest hallmark of character and human maturity is that. So your point's well made. Thank you very much, Michael. You're welcome. We'll be circling back here in a moment. Nasir Game, hi. Welcome to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. What are your thoughts as you listen to this? Sure. And your thoughts that were in you prior to hearing this discussion? Right. Well, you know, I've I've written a few blog posts about this uh, before the election and just after. And uh, you know, as you just mentioned, I wrote about the general topic in a first-rate madness in my book about uh, what I saw as manic depressive illness in historical leaders. Um, and one of the things mm-hmm. I wanted to point out was that not only do many of our leaders have psychiatric conditions, specifically manic depression is the most commonly most common in my view but it's actually not very harmful. 
it's not as particularly only harmful, I should say. It's also beneficial in some ways. And my general theory was that uh, there were four traits that grow out of having depression and manic symptoms that are helpful for people in general and for leaders in particular, and they are uh, realism and empathy, which are enhanced in people with depression, and creativity and resilience to stress, which are uh, increased in people with manic symptoms. And what mm -hmm. I've uh, talked about is that people uh, many of these leaders have these conditions. They don't necessarily have the most severe versions. They can have mild symptoms, uh, even as part of their personality. Uh, and mm -hmm. this is not often discussed in psychiatric work um, because it's, some of this is older work uh, that's not really in the American DSM system, like uh, hyperthymia, which is mild manic symptoms all the time, cyclothymia, where you're up and down all the time. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I talked about, and sometimes people like this also have severe depressive episodes. So some of these people are well-known, like Abraham Lincoln, like Winston Churchill. Some, are, some of the leaders are well-known, but the fact that they've had uh, depressive or manic symptoms or episodes is not so well-known, such as uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, General William Sherman. Uh, I've written about them, and, and not, they're not always good leaders. Sometimes they're good leaders for their cause, but very terrible for others, for humanity, people like Adolf Hitler, who very clearly mm -hmm. had bipolar illness. Just what I was so, thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think putting our heads in the sand, as, as the psychiatric profession has done since the Goldwater election, and to say that it's unethical to ever talk about these things is an easy solution to avoid lawsuits, like you said. But I'm not sure it's so good mm -hmm. either for society or for the mental health professions. In fact, I think that you know one of the, the rationales for the Goldwater rule to say you shouldn't diagnose public figures is because they say it's stigmatizing. Well, it's only stigmatizing if you think the diagnoses are bad. Mm -hmm. And that's part of our assumptions. We're stigmatizing. We mental health professionals are stigmatizing these diagnoses instead of being willing to talk about them and talk about their good parts, too. And that's what I think Absolutely. we should be doing as well with uh, everybody, including current leaders like the current president. Yeah. I was also thinking as you were speaking this year of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who used to pull the curtains closed uh, and just sit and mope around for days, it was said, because of mm -hmm. the pain. He was a, the, what I'm saying kind of exemplifies both parts, the depressive part, as well as the empathetic slash sympathetic part of his nature. Right. He was right. apparently very deeply pained by the pain he was causing through his political and militaristic choices in Vietnam and right. the need uh, he felt to lie about it to the American public. So it's sort of like a compounding issue, one layer after another of complexities of symptoms and issues that arise when one is in this kind of position of such power. And, uh, yeah, so both we see the negative part. I mean, his wife was incredibly dismayed when he would kind of disappear, as was all of his staff, but he would just literally disappear and then reappear. And, uh, you know, that was a sunnier day. But the point of recognizing the value uh, on the other side of things of a given uh you know, diagnosis. I think that's a really important 
point that is altogether too buried, and I think one of the reasons it's buried, and I'd like to hear what everyone has to say about this, is because we live in a, uh, and pardon the generalization, a Judeo-Christian context inside of which psychiatry and psychology live. Talk about fields. This is a, you know, if you want to quote the uh, British uh, biologist, Rupert Sheldrake, who speaks about morphogenetic fields, and I do all the time as well. Uh, we're living inside of a certain perspective, a purview, and all of our thinking, all of our ontology is really uh, perched inside of that. So, in other words, what does that mean in the real world? It means that judgment is ample and it's everywhere. So even though we want to be generous in our understanding, for instance, of what you're saying here, Nasir, about the uh, kind of the light and the dark side, both of a given diagnostic category, if we're inside a world of judgment and we've been programmed to think that way, it's going to be coming through the subset of psychiatric or psychological diagnoses. Comments? Michael, do you have a comment about that? I'm not sure the best way to respond to that, Mitch. I mean, I think we get caught up in a lot of rhetoric, and we and we get reluctant to make some really poignant comments about life and about people we see around us. And again, I, I want to go back to something I think we can we, we can all lose if we focus on the individual right now with this guy, with Trump, because again, if we look at it as a system, this something in the system kicked this figure up as a leader for us. Yes. And I think if we want to look at, you know, whether we want to say he's afflicted, not afflicted, I think you got to look at the system that created this and say, okay, it, it, let's say we do come out on the line where I think many of us would say there's tremendous affliction here. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we want to call it uh, moral insanity, whatever we want to call it, okay? I think you got to say the system that produced this is is equally deeply flawed. And I think in, in many ways it would be all too easy for anyone to focus on the singular figure and say, you know, I know I'm not addressing your, your issue directly, Mitch, but I hope this helps a little, that if we focus on him and where he's at, which I think we do at some point, but we, that could be another scapegoat for us. It could be another, you know, t- tie the can on the goat and send him out of town with our sins, another sin eater. <laughs> I think he's worthy of all of the things we say about him. Okay, that, yes. you know, I, I'm... Obviously, I'm in agreement with all of us, or most of us, that are saying that we're in a lot of danger right now. And we're, we're you know, if you remember the movie Came Mutiny? <laughs> we're at a time of Came Mutiny yeah. where, you know, we get a leader at the helm here, like Bogart played out in that brilliant movie. However, again, I think if we don't want to, if we don't address the question of how do we get to a point where this person was elected and he got this kind of collective support, I think that's where you want to make judgments of what it will make it not judgment, but evaluate to try to make some kind of objective evaluation and say, we kicked this out. We produced this. We, we supported this. What kind of system yes. would have done that? Yes. That to me is, is an issue that I don't want that piece to get lost. So I'm not afraid to make comments. You know, I'm not reluctant to say that, yeah, we're in very rough time because of the leader we have right now. And you know what? We're in even rougher times because our system kicked it up and there's, there's no accountability. You know, yeah. I, I think right I now we're in a point where we're going back to scapegoating. 
Again, he's a worthy yeah, scapegoat. <laughs> he's worthy, right? Get that tin can. Get that tin can, right? No, I, I, these points are very well made, and uh, we're looking at you know it's sort of like um, figure ground, you know, in gestalt. Yeah. You know, it's this idea that on one hand we've got a specific character who is actually wielding a tremendous amount of power, and he is a result of a systemic flaw or a systemic issue, let me put it that way, a little more generously, that really needs to be reckoned with, that involves a a certain moral degradation, a certain even intellectual degradation, we could say. Um, So why don't you jump in, Nasir and Rick? I'd love to hear what you both have to say here. Yeah, well, this is Rick. If you don't mind, Nasir, I'd like to make a few comments. Go ahead. Yes, uh, this is a very, very good discussion. I have enormous regard for the two other uh, health professionals and you, Mitch, who are on the phone with me. Uh, But, you know, I'm going to be practical. I've been in the corporate world my whole life. Uh, We have a problem on our hands, and I do agree with with, uh, the concept of just not focusing on the problem. When Dr. Conforti stated that we have possibly moral insanity, and uh, he referenced some of his experience with screening applicants for a variety of professional positions, there is a movement afoot as we speak, for example, for medical school applicants to be screened for empathy. So it's not just their test scores. On, in undergraduate school and their medical med tests, the medical the testing for medical school application, they are moving toward understanding that their patients want empathetic physicians, as we want empathetic leaders in our world. And there's no reason why, if we do ever get to the point where we have standardized release of medical information, that part of that medical information can't be an assessment of traits. They have to be validated, of course, but assessment of traits such as empathy or moral fiber or whatever phrase you want to use. Mm-hmm. As far as Nasir, as far as Nasir's uh, point, uh, point, you know, I, I read his book. Uh, I'm extremely impressed with uh, uh, the uh, how profound he is. Uh, uh, writing and speaking about these issues, uh, I uh, I'd like to say, however, that right now we we're, we're at risk with the person who is in that office, in my opinion, and I don't think we should stray too far from uh, helping uh, to uh, uh, properly measure that risk and to uh, affect. Uh, possible interventions to uh, reduce the risk. Uh, then longer term, of course, you know, I, I will tell you, I was surprised. I'm just going to make one other comment. I was surprised. Listen to this one. The Hill, which is a, I guess it's a, I don't know whether it's a publication, publication. or a, I get it as a, as, as a blog, reported on uh, the 17th of February. Believe it or not, House Oversight Committee Chairman Jason Shabbats, Republican from Utah, is working on legislation to require future presidential candidates to release the results of an independent 
physical exam. I don't, I don't know whether this exists as an idea or whether it's on paper. The House Minority Leader, Nancy Pelosi, is thrilled about this, as I am, and I think all three of you would be, too. How a person mm-hmm. on the Republican side would come up with this is sort of surprising to me, but I found it, on, I found it as an article in The Hill. And then there are other uh, other initiatives uh, that I can speak about later. But thank you, uh, thank you all for uh, for uh, oh, absolutely, so appreciate the input. You know, the Mormons have the Mormons tend to be very into health and wellness. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know, Rick. But, uh, <laughs> it's fine. That's right. He's a Mormon. And I think they ought to put in psychiatric there as well. You know, just to uh, insert something here before we. Uh, I, I asked Nasir to weigh in here. Uh, back in the uh, 90s, in 1992, 96, and 2000, I was uh, very much a supporter of a, an award-winning physicist from Harvard uh, who was running for president in the Natural Law Party. Maybe none of you have even heard of him, but Dr. John Hagelin. And uh, he was also involved in the Transcendental Meditation Movement. And uh, there was actually a fair amount of research that was done at Harvard on the effects of meditation on consciousness, on brain coherence. And uh, one of the times when I was interviewing him for A Better World TV in the year 2000, when he was running against G.W. Bush, he said, I think that all of we candidates should be subject to an EEG so we can see if we know how to be uh, hemispherically coherent so we can make the decisions needed for the Oval Office. And uh, so I've been kind of um, toying with the whole idea for many years of, of some kind of uh, evaluation, uh, both on the quantitative and qualitative sides of someone running for office, and I don't mean just president, because as uh, Michael Conforti keeps pointing out, this is a systemic issue, which includes the entire land as a field, and but in particular the people that decide to rise up into the field of politics. So I just thought you'd enjoy that little tidbit. Uh, Nasir, what would you have to say about what you're, what you're hearing here? Well, I mean, I, I think there's a lot that could be said, um, and, and some is more general uh, and maybe not relevant for, for the time we have. Um, but then maybe we could be more specific about the current president and some of the concerns that are raised. Um, I would yeah. just say you know, one or two things here. In terms of just pointing out a, a general point, we should be careful that there isn't any one way to be an excellent leader or president or uh, you know, there, it, and, and the one way, if there is, if one thinks that there is a way, it isn't necessarily the way of mental health. Uh, we have had many leaders who are very mentally healthy who have not been very good leaders, and that's been that was another uh, aspect of my work, which is I found that some of our greatest crisis leaders had manic depressive illness, like the people I mentioned, and some of the worst mm-hmm. leaders we had were very mentally healthy and stable, like Neville Chamberlain, and uh, this would be controversial, but George W. Bush was a very normal, mm-hmm. mentally healthy fellow and made some mistakes. Mm-hmm. So that's a general point. I just want to put that out there. But I think specific to sure. the president, and I, and I want to address what Rick said, um, you know, I think that the president 
and I've written about this in my blog post, I think that he has manic symptoms. I think he has them all the time, part of his temperament. I think there's a lot of confusion because in the mental health professions, there's always been a reluctance to diagnose manic depressive illness or the bipolar illness as it's frequently referred to. And instead, people are using phrases like narcissistic, psychopathic, antisocial, etc. Not that there's not something to that. Those are useful descriptive terms in a way but they're also pejorative and not, in my view, scientifically very well proven. They're, you know, Greek mythological terms that Sigmund Freud decided to apply to psychological speculations. But when you look at, for instance, the scientific research on narcissistic personality disorder, quote-unquote, it's been proven to be invalid that you can't distinguish it from other uh, personality traits. And on the other hand, manic symptoms can explain self-esteem being high. They can explain lack of empathy, which is a feature of mania. They can explain lots of things that people want to use these other terms for. They can explain things that that these other phrases don't explain, such as the fact that the president has uh, only three to four hours of sleep a night and is a highly energetic person and has a very high libido, apparently. All of that's consistent with manic symptoms. Now, this is not to say that it's all bad, and that's the other point I want to make. I agree with Rick, and this is why we're talking, that there's some important risks here. But we should point out that the reason he got elected president, one reason he got elected president, is that he was more realistic and creative than his opponent. That He was in touch with the feelings of hurt and of pain of a swath of middle America that um, the Democrats didn't see. And um, this is not to say that he's going to be a great president, but he certainly was a very good presidential candidate. And now we need to figure out how we can address the risks that are inherent now that we have him in office with these kinds of uh, manic-type symptoms that can also make you impulsive, and that can put things uh, things at risk in a, in a new way. But I think a hard part yes. here is that the mental health professions don't really have a consensus in their own minds about what exactly the problem is so that we could talk to the public about it. Yes, understood. I just have to pause for a moment of uh, identification here. You are listening to A Better World Radio. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. Also, if you do not yet get our newsletter, please go to www.abetterworld.tv. We have a free newsletter that announces our weekly radio show as well as our weekly community television program here in Manhattan in New York City aired every Monday at 7 p.m. So uh, please become part of a better world community and uh, we so appreciate your attention to our our shows. So with that said, uh, to pick up on this, you know, you could definitely make the argument that he had his finger on a certain kind of uh, psychic pulse of the American people, but I would also argue that I felt that Bernie Sanders did as well. I think that they're part of what accounts for his getting elected, and there's a huge amount of controversy around that having to do with this whole Russian issue and uh, suppression of votes and the like, so I don't want to go down those alleyways. But, uh, you know, um, he's a celebrity, and we live in a society that is involved in idolatry. Funny how we keep bringing up these certain religious themes. But this issue (laughs) of idolatry, of both celebrity, 
because of his, you know, reality TV show, but also celebrity as a billionaire. And we, as a society, seem to adore a fame and money. And I think those are should not be discounted in understanding how he reached the uh, kind of some of the heart of the American people. They, I think there's some kind of extremely primitive idea, and this reverts back to some of what Michael Comforti is bringing up of looking at systems here and the overall field, and that is there is some very primitive uh, thinking that somehow daddy is going to take care of us all. After all, he hit the jackpot. There's plenty of money for everyone. Donald, won't you hire me? You know, it it sounds very funny. Um, But it's a little closer, I think, to pathetic than funny. But I do think that that's one of the psychic strains running through threads, running through our society. Uh, I also think it's important that we take a look at the the real danger at hand, um, and that really zooms in on who this particular person is, while everything that is being said here, I think, has a great deal of merit by, by each person in this roundtable. Um, at the same time, we're dealing with a phenomenological situation where this man has access to the nuclear codes, and he doesn't understand anything about climate science, obviously, just based on decisions made yesterday and the appointment of Scott Pruitt. We're dealing with a talk about fields. The entire cabinet, I would say, is deeply troubled, and that is a reflection of the psyche of the president himself. So there are multiple layers of confusion, and I will definitely say pathology. Now, Nasir, you raise a very interesting point about is the best balanced, mentally balanced uh, president the best leader? Well, you know, I think that's a very interesting question. And the answer is, uh, as you said, not necessarily. However, when we're dealing with a different time now than we have in the past in history, We never had this amount of concentration of power in a few different technologies, including surveillance, by the way, that really has to be reckoned with. So the mental at least stability of someone in that position of commander-in-chief really does need assessment and discussion. So uh, I'm opening this up again after those comments. Well, let me make one comment, Mitch. This is Michael. A number of years, many years ago, Freud wrote a letter to Einstein, and he invited him to be part of a group of theologians, um, historians, scholars, to create a group like a think tank, and I believe at that point to be attached to UNESCO to help with world decisions. It failed. You know, Einstein and others weren't interested. Elie Wiesel picked up that theme, I don't remember what year it was, maybe in the 70s, whatever, I don't remember, after he got the Nobel Prize, that he, uh-huh. he, he contacted many of the Nobel laureates around the world and said, look, I'd like us to get together, and I don't want any, I don't want any politicians, I don't want any, um, anyone with any um, power positions in, in the outer world that makes decisions and laws. I want people that are recognized for their expertise and as 
as leaders in their work, thought leaders. And mm-hmm. he said, look, what I wanted to do, he said, was I want to get these people and connect them to the United Nations so that they don't have any financial gains, there's no political gain, they're people that are, can be as objective as possible because there's no other gains. And many people said, you know what, it was a great idea, but we're not interested, it's too much work, too much headaches. But it's interesting that there has yeah. been a movement to get people, to get some kind of, I don't even want to say governing, but some kind of body that can look at these issues and make some comments on it. I mean, to, to me, it's yeah. just incredulous. I'm sure to our committee, it's on the roundtable today. It's incredulous that these people that are being elected are being done so without the the guidance or expertise of people that are trained in analysis, in medicine, in psychology, social work, human relations work. Okay. How could you not involve some of these people? That's part one. Step yeah. two, and I'll shut up here, is the what I would call the limitations of a paradigm. You say, well, in psychology, we have certain terms, and they become prejudicial or whatever. We're going to get these standards to judge people. Well, you know what? Look, I think in many ways it's it's somewhat juvenile to think we're going to judge a person, judge a person's character with tests. I think we can get it. I love the idea, Rick and others, you guys were saying. I think I would be behind that in a heartbeat to have some kind of measures. However... To, to look at issues of compassion, to look at issues. I mean, you get some of these people that are vying for these positions, and we watch them. We watch the hearings, right? I'm sure any of us could 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 smell what's really going on in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Who's being consulted? Al, Al Franken, which is doing a great job. He's doing a great job interviewing these people. Uh, Warren mm-hmm. and all that. But they're not trained in, in this kind of work. So I'm not trying to contradict myself in terms of limitations of a paradigm, but bring people that have some <laughs> awareness of these issues, people that can sniff out and see the symptoms and behavior that can lead to this kind of trouble. It's all unbelievably evident, and you want to hit your head against a brick wall when you say, it's right in front of you. Can't you see it? It's written <laughs> on the head, on the forehead. <laughs> you can say, well, it's prejudicial. It's just a subjective opinion. Well, it's not. At some point, Not I think really. you get a group of people that are trained in this work, put 20, 30 years into their profession, they're going to tell you. that You could smell, I'll talk street for a second, you could smell a rat. You could smell a phony. Mm-hmm. You could smell somebody that knows the rhetoric. They know the lines. And the, the bottom yeah. line here is it's character. You go through history, and the greatest kings and, and leaders were ones that had character and compassion. Yeah. How how did that not become a criteria? How did we lose that? Mm-hmm. In history, of King Agamemnon wanted to rule the world, and King oh. Priam that had compassion for his people. How did we lose it? You tell me. <laughs> and how is that no longer yeah. one of the, the major um, points that we want to see? Do, does this candidate have that? Who's slick as anybody? Well, let me sound at... Uh, <laughs> I may sound like a Jungian at this moment, but what archetypes are we now laboring under and which ones should we be aspiring to, you know, and no. that change. That's of, not being Jungian, uh, I think it's being a humanist. It, it's, it's asking the sure. existential human issue, human question. That's right. That's right. 
That's right. So where do we go from here? This is, uh, we've outlined some of the things. The word narcissism was only used once about almost 45 minutes into this discussion. I'm very impressed with that, although I think that it is a word that uh, has a, a connotation that everyone can agree on. And scientific or not, it's understood in our society, and we have associated with it certain <laughs> kinds of behaviors and attitudes, and I think that he would qualify uh, bigly for all of them. So what, where do we go from here? How can we actually get legislation that could, uh, on one hand, provide some level of psychological, emotional, uh, psychiatric, maybe spiritual assessment, in addition to, let's say, meetings? among professionals. I mean, this sounds so far-fetched in our day and age, but, you know, I know that I wrote to Clinton when he first became president, and I said, you know, I, I, didn't, have, I didn't vote for him. I was not for him, but I thought, look, the guy uh, almost inhaled, and he played saxophone. The guy's got to have some <laughs> level of soul, and he tried to uh, he tried to avoid the Vietnam War, you know. So I don't know. In my book, he he had a couple of good merits, and so I thought I'd reach out to him as like a, a fellow, you know, brother, if you will, and say, dear Mr. Clinton, the only way I think we can really make America great, by the way, um, is to. Um, Look at our history, look at what we have done first and foremost to the native peoples, then we did it to uh, to the blacks, and then we did it to the Chinese, and then we did it to, uh, well, the list is long of the types of prejudice and bias and racism and different sorts uh, that have been um, perpetrated on so many people who have come to this country. I think we need to have a serious, real, humbling apology session to each of these groups and ask for forgiveness and then assemble, ask the Native people if they would be willing to be part of a, a team of elders who would help to guide you as president. They have a relationship to the land. They have a relationship to nature. They have a relationship to wisdom that I'm not sure people running for president have. And I think that if they'd be willing to guide, we could really get somewhere, clean up our karma, so to speak, and really move forward with heart. Anyway, I did get a letter back, by the way. It was a form letter. But I did learn, by the way, that he did apologize publicly to the native people now i can't take credit for that although because it doesn't matter <laughs> oh, uh, i was just glad that i heard that it happened anyway you know my play aside uh what do you gentlemen think we can do constructively at this point in time for our american people and for all people across the planet it's interesting, and Asira, I'd actually like to bring this up because you are of Iranian birth and, you know, and culture as, long, as well as American, of course. Uh, you came here so young in your life. 
but uh, you know, we always like to respect roots. Uh, all of us, uh, minor Ukrainian, uh, and with what is going on right now, he is threatening the you know the wonderful people of Iran. That is one of his agenda items. He doesn't put it that way quite, but that is ultimately uh, what is on the table. Your thoughts? Well, I, I mean, in terms of the, the political aspects, I I have uh, a lot of concern about that and about many other. I'm sure we're all in – I think we are probably in agreement politically on many aspects of the issues. In terms of Iran in particular, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. – Short-sighted. It's it's deeply mistaken. Uh, it's very influenced by uh, Saudi Arabia and others in the region who are in a power struggle with Iran over there. Um, and uh, it's 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 mistaken in the sense that so many of the, the problems that he's r- r- raising, like ISIS and Islamic fundamentalism, come from this, the Wahhabi Sunni tradition, which is uh, headquartered in mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. And have nothing yes. to do with Iran's Shiite uh, approach. In fact, the Shiites, court to them, are infidels just as much as Christians are. So it yes. shows a very deep under, un, lack of understanding. Misunderstanding. Of so many lack of yeah. F- yeah, yeah, misunderstanding of facts, simple facts that have to do with the religion there, and politics. Yeah. Um, but you know, Not I don't true. think that has probably much to do with his personal psychology or or psychological state. Uh, there are many very stable, very conservative Christian fundamentalists, right-wing Republicans in the U.S. who share those same views. Uh, it's, it's it's just mistaken ideas, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm not sure we would want to divorce it from psychological states. It appears, perhaps, but, you know, the ability to sit down and listen, to attend to more than nine bullet points on a single page, which is what one of the articles that Rick sent out, uh, and this has been made public about the way he digests, assimilates information. This is, I, I think there's a, an emotional, a psycho-emotional component in the lack of attention uh, and its exercise that really needs to be looked at, and that's Perhaps I don't know if that's a, that's, a that's manic one. depressive symptom. Yeah, I mean, well, distractibility is a manic symptom, and that's one point. I would emphasize. You might be right. I mean, I'm not trying. I, I don't want to dismiss it. I, I'm just. I'm just making the point. It's not. It's relevant, perhaps, but there are other aspects too that are non-psychological here, which involve you know uh, the social conservatism in general. But but mm-hmm. I, I would make another point that's psychological. Um, when people have manic symptoms, they have low empathy. That's been proven in psychiatric studies, just as the increased empathy has been proven with depression. There's empathy rating scales. It's quantitated. There's decent scientific evidence for this. Uh, and when you look at leaders who have had manic symptoms um, in the past, one that stands out who had very low empathy for some other people was Winston Churchill. Churchill mm-hmm. had uh, basically zero empathy for India. He was very... Uh, nasty towards Mahatma Gandhi. So even though we view him as a great leader, he was great for the British people. He was great for Americans and Westerners, but he wasn't so great for India. Um, mm-hmm. And in some ways, you can look at Trump in the same way. He he has empathy for white Americans in middle America. He does have some empathy. It's just for a, a limited number of people. Yeah. And he doesn't have empathy for yeah. Iranians and for Muslims and so on. And um, yeah. 
And I think yeah. that's what we're dealing with. It's not an ge- inherent general lack of empathy. It's more of a one that has boundaries that are very limited. Yes. Interesting point. Yeah, I think that's uh, important to recognize. Rick Lippin, we're we're winding down here. Uh, I'd like you all to kind of share your last comments here. And, Rick, I would also, though, like to engage you because you've been so engaged in this whole subject of possible uh, assessment of our leaders. Uh, have you done anything? I'm just wondering in respect to actually introducing legislation. No, no, I haven't. And I would like not, to go why back. Why not? And when might you? Okay. Well, I'd like to thank Nasir for emphasizing the fact that he believes that Trump, Mr. The President Trump, might uh, have a manic uh, orientation. I don't know whether it's a diagnosis, but I agree with that. Thank you, Nasir. I I can't uh, fathom how I candidate can get up in front of the world and literally in public mock a disabled reporter and how what kind of society elects a person like that as far as uh, as far as legislation I have written I intend to write to uh, Jason Shavitz because I think he at least is one person who's starting something and also Dr. David Blumenthal, who's president of the Commonwealth Fund and a colleague of his, has called for a congressional commission on presidential health to consider what constitutes appropriate disclosure uh, by candidates for the presidency. And these are initiatives. I can tell you that the this 25th Amendment uh, requires the vice president and 13 out of 24 cabinet members to basically declare a coup uh, as it now stands. And that's, that's out of date. We need to do better with revising the 25th Amendment. Now, can Rick Lippin do it? Of course not. But I'm starting to write to scholars, legal scholars, on the 25th Amendment. And I invite you to join me with these efforts. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. I think you're doing good work here, Rick, and I applaud your commitment to setting the record straight and helping. I don't know, maybe you'll get an invitation to the White House and uh, you can speak with uh, Mr. Trump directly. I uh, I highly doubt it, but I would actually welcome the opportunity. <laughs> but I, I highly doubt that. If, he, if it's one of his... Uh, if one of his operatives listens to this program in particular, but anyway. <laughs> well, maybe just tell him that you are a specialist in occupational medicine, and before he occupies yeah. the White House any further, you think you ought to have a chat. Okay. I don't know. It's just Why not? Idea. Why not? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Goodforty, would you please weigh in and uh, last thoughts for us? Final comment, audience. I think when you live in a country when there's no trust for the leader, we're going to have a, we're going to continue with terrible affliction. I mean, again, mm-hmm. go back to ancient times when you had the the terrible rulers, difficult rulers. All you had was uh, pestilence and and disease in those countries, in those regions. I mean, you, whether you look at fairy mm-hmm. tales, whether you look at real life. And I think we're back at a time right now where the level of trust is so bad. I mean, when you look at it on a bigger level than just what I feel, what you feel, but again, as a collective, you're saying when this, when so many people do not trust their leaders. I mean, look what's going on with the police right now. 
You know, how many people don't trust? We grew up in a family, you know, Italian-Americans from Brooklyn, you know, my family from Sicily originally. And we grew up with a lot of policemen, and they were the, the good ones, you know, the, the good ones mm-hmm. on the block, you know, Officer Joe. So anyway, whatever we could do to to begin to dismantle all those powers at large that have worked to erode and eclipse trust, collective trust, I think they've got to be gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. And then I think what we need is to have some way of having leadership that has a fair amount of trust built into it. I mean, look, we know leaders are reflected. There's no, there's nothing ideal. But something mm-hmm. that is going to at least speak to the people, like, you know, one of our colleagues on the call is saying, you know, that Trump did care about the middle class and all that. I don't buy it for a second. I think it was all political. I think it was all staged. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's somebody that really can care. Somebody that we can say, you know what, I have reason to believe, reason to trust. That, I think, yeah. is what's going to make a difference. How we get there, Rick, you know, if you if you get on some of these committees, call me. I'll be with you in a heartbeat. <laughs> I would love <laughs> to help. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, please. You know, I admire what you're saying. And So, Mitchell, that's where I come out with this, you know. I, and I tell you, in my 35 years as being an analyst, I've never seen so many people in a sense of despair and sadness. Yes. And I've never seen so many dreams of the executive function in the personality being represented by despotic figures. I've never seen in my entire career before. Oh, so, so interesting an observation. Oh my God! And, and so you say that what, what's being implanted into the into the psyche right now, into the collective personality, is something that's so afflicted. And it, right mm-hmm. now it's. Thank God there's more and more noise about it. Many people are beginning to, to wake up and protest. I think that's great because the bottom line is you can't have something that doesn't create trust. I mean, think of it real simple. Think of it like a family. If you've got a, a parents that are deeply afflicted, what's going to happen to those kids? Come on. I mean, it's simple in that of level. Course. It's simple to break it down of that course. way. So. Sure. I don't want to take sure. any more of your time. This, this is, is just a big American and a larger global family. Yeah. And uh, the parents are a little unruly, to be generous about <laughs> A little <it>. bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much, Dr. Michael Conforti. Give our your website as well, and Rick as oh. well. I'm, I'm sorry, I overlooked Well, that. the Assisi Institute, we started in 1989, and the website is assisiinstitute, one word, dot com. And there's, there's two of them, actually. There's one that's not us, it's out in Rochester, New York, and then it's us. And we do program around the world. Actually, we've got students from 10 different countries right now, including a number from Moscow, studying with us. Mm. So, ccinstitute.com. Thanks for that, Metro. Beautiful. Thank you, Michael Conforti. You're so welcome. You're welcome. It. Rick, your, uh, your website is? It's not really very active, but I'll give it to you. www.ricklipin.org. Uh, ricklippin.org and it it shows you some of my interests and writings uh thank you for the opportunity mitchell this has been terrific absolutely thank you so much for joining us and nasir gami please your last comments here today and uh give us your website or any way to reach you or your blog yes Right. Well, I, so my website is just my name also, nasirgami.com, uh, N-A-S-S-I-R is my first name, G-H-A-E, Amazon Mary, I. Um, and uh, people can just Google me if they want to look at uh, some of the work I've done and, and some of my writings. Um, 
I would just yeah. summarize what I think. I, I think as a practical matter, I think Rick's idea uh, that it sounds like uh, Congressman Chaffetz has, has <coughs> taken forward is uh, an important practical step that there should be an independent medical evaluation of, of presidential candidates, which should include a psychiatric component. I think, though, mm -hmm. that um, there's a lot of work to be done internally in the mental health professions for us to be able to um, speak to the public. Uh, I think it's very important to do so with as much scientific rigor as we can. I understand that there's a lot of wisdom in uh, a lot of that's been said um, uh, by Dr. Conforti uh, and by you, uh, Mitchell, and, and, and I think it would be it's great to uh, access that wisdom in some way. But mm -hmm. it's hard to do so on a policy level, on a political level, uh, coming from a profession that that is organized as a profession around some technical knowledge. And in our society, um, technical knowledge needs to be scientifically uh, shown. And I think there's some work yeah. to be done there. And I've tried to contribute to that in terms of what I think is our, our strongest scientific uh, ground for uh, contributing better to this discussion about leadership, which is so essential, not just in politics, but in business and in military settings as well. And I think that, that this is a very important discussion to have about the psychology, uh, psychological, psychiatric aspects of the president. Um, and we also have to remember that there are other aspects, social ones, uh, that have been brought up that are important, such as conservatism, uh, what I, what I would call postmodernism, this uh, this loss of uh, connection to truth, as has been discussed, yeah. and those things are are part of the the larger ambient ambient uh, um, state of things that allow yes. the the current president's psychological state to to be to to interact with them in such a way that 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 it raises risks, um, and so I think it's been a great discussion. Thank you for including me in it. Absolutely. Nasir Gami, thank you so much for joining us, all of you. I so appreciate it. And, uh, just, I'll just say a very quick comment or two here, which is to say, just taking a step back, you know, the 30,000-foot you know, uh, view here for one moment is to say that there is a loss of soul. I mean, I think that it's interesting. We've been having a semi-scientific discussion here because we have a uh, two MDs with us. Uh, Michael and I are not, and uh, by choice, actually. And uh, we we may hang out a bit more in the more subjective realms. However, uh, we do live, I think it's fair to say, in a largely economized and technologized society, and there's a relationship between those two. And I think that it has had a kind of a demeaning effect on the development and importance of soul in our lives. And there's been a degradation of the family unit, so to speak. We even use the word unit to describe a family. That's funny and odd in itself if you think about it. Uh, we talk about a nuclear family, another thing to cause alarm. And there's a qualitative nature of human life, of our emotional lives, that has become subjugated to so much other influence. I mean, all the way to the iPhone, that people are no longer in direct 
eye-to-eye, belly-to-belly contact with each other in the way that maybe, let's say, we have all been raised with. We didn't have computers to be the interface of communication. And as a result, I feel that there was more substance and ability to develop character and watching out for each other, sort of the Officer Joe in Brooklyn that Michael Conforti made reference to on one end, but also we had our own checks and balances in our own families and our communities about what we can do and what we can't. So we all had to also be closer to the sacredness of our word. Our word meant something, a handshake, so to speak, in making a deal. Well, our the degradation of our society doesn't allow for that much anymore. It's the oddity. It's the eccentric moment rather than the norm. All of these are just measures of a certain moral degradation that Michael Conforti was speaking about before, and I think it's really important for us all to take a look at. And now it has edged its way all the way up to the White House. I would also make the point that I think that it's been that way for a long time. Frankly, this is not new from that point of view. I wish it were. But uh, I think there's an overall issue that we need to take a look at, uh, a loss of consciousness and a loss of conscience. So ironically and paradoxically at a time when we have more that can really support human development perhaps than ever before. So I know those are general comments, but I'd like to just leave us all with uh, those thoughts as well. So again, thank you gentlemen, all of you, for joining me today on, I feel, a a robust and important conversation that is just, I would say, the beginning of of many. So again, thank you all for participating. Thank you, Mitch, and and great work putting this together. Wonderful vision. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank Thank you, Mitch. Thank you all. Sure. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Uh, feel free to get in touch with me at directly at mjr at abetterworld.net. I always appreciate hearing from my, uh, my listeners. I get a lot from hearing what you have to say. And please spread the word, share this, this uh, radio show with others to stimulate thought about uh, a kind of world that we might create and have as a possibility for ourselves that's a little bit more balanced. And uh, also there are some great ideas shared here in this roundtable about opening up our thoughts and judgments about um, different kinds of symptoms and different kinds of psychiatric illnesses. So uh, there's a good and the bad to it all. So we want to embrace that as well. Visit me at my website www.mitchellrabin.com that's M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L rabin.com I'm in private practice here in New York City and the media website www.abetterworld.tv thank you again for joining and I look forward to seeing you all next week